Employment discrimination is illegal and takes many forms. Religion. Race. Workers' compensation claims. Gender. Age. Disability. If you believe your employer has illegally fired or retaliated against you, contact us. Protecting your employment rights. Why we do what we do. The Law Offices of Stephen New. It's time to rumble! It's time for the Royal Rumble! Participants include the Immortal Hulk Hogan, the Hitman Bret Hart, Animal from Legion of Doom, the Undertaker, the Tugboats, the Model Rick Martel, Mr. Perfect, Hexar Jim Duggan, the Earthquake, Saba Simba, the British Bulldog, Paul Roma, Tito Santana, Butch the Bushwhacker, Jake the Snake Roberts, the Warlord, Demolition Smash, Texas Tornado Kerry Von Eric, Hawk of Legion of Doom, Superfly, Luke the Bushwhacker, The Anvil, Demolition Crush, Dino Bravo, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Hercules, Nasty Boy Brian Knobs, The Macho King Randy Savage, Haku, and Shane Douglas. It's every man for himself in the Royal Rumble. This is it tonight, gang. Welcome to Franchise with Shane Douglas. Franchisees, the time is now. We are back right here on your favorite podcast and mine, Franchised with Shane Douglas and the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Franchise himself. Shane Douglas is with me. How you doing, Shane? Doing good, man. My kid's a little bit sick. He's got a little bit of a, some kind of bug. He's been down for a couple days, but he's bouncing back, so just... The regular things that go on this time of year. Yes, yeah, sickness is everywhere, and uh, I'm just hoping that none of it is the coronavirus, right? <laughs> yeah, doesn't it seem a little strange to anybody but me that, that there was a husband and wife that were arrested in Canada for shipping coronavirus to Wuhan, China, right before this happened? Seems seems just a little bit coincidental to me. I don't know, crazy, right? I mean, it's just, you know, the more you turn on the news, the more you just, like your brain just spins in your head because it's, what the hell's going on, man? It's like I nothing mean, makes it's, sense anymore. Nothing at all. Yeah. Two and two is 365 anymore. It's uh, <laughs> absolutely insane. But, you know, it's, like I was talking to a friend of mine here a couple minutes ago, and I said, uh, you know, hey, it's freezing outside. It's uh, 30, 31 degrees right now. I said, hey, it's Pittsburgh in, in January. This is what you get, right? It's, uh, it's not like you're expecting like 78 and balmy in Pittsburgh in January. Right. Yeah, the weather is definitely on the same path as the news. Everything is just all messed up. But last week, uh, or we talked about AEW, and uh, we did our AEW show. We got a lot of feedback from that. It was actually downloaded more times in one day than any episode we've ever done, which means that it beat out 
the dynamic dudes for that title. And uh, a lot of people have heard it. A lot of people uh, loved the uh, loved the episode. Some people had uh, some things to say. One of the things that I need to bring up before we even go any farther is we talked about Tessa Blanchard and her situations. And now yep. it has came out that that tape that we were talking about was not Tessa. That's the word now, that it was not Tessa on that tape and that it was actually something done by a porn star that was passed off as Tessa. So Okay, see, so there, there's the cautionary tale. That's why whenever this stuff gets brought up in these discussions, I try to tread as lightly as I can because you get, you know, we, we get a piece of information, right, that, well, hey, Jim Cornette's talked about it and so this and this and this. And we jump in with both feet, and then we find out. Oh, by the way, it's not Tessa Blanchard, and and we all sound like idiots. Well, we uh, did. We did say, you know, it, to our defense, we did say we don't know if this is true. We we said many, many yeah. times on the podcast that this may not be real. We're just talking about it because other people are talking about it. So we kind of covered our asses. Um, Jim Cornette kind of covered his too. He he said, you know, he didn't believe it, but uh, but now. Everyone is saying that, no, that was not Tessa. It's actually went silent on the Internet, so no one's talking about it now. So I just wanted to make sure well, that everyone here, said that it was not true. Again, here, here's the cautionary tale to everybody. You know, it's, I'm trying to think on the top of my head because in the last couple of days I've seen, well, okay, let's go to something topical. Kobe Bryant, right? Horrific. I mean, it's a horrific story all yeah. around. Terrible. You know, you, you to, to be you know full transparency. You were the first to alert me on that. I was driving, and you sent me the text. I, I mean, probably within minutes of it being beamed out on national news. But within the next few hours of getting that text from you, I saw reports that Toby and all four of his daughters were killed in that flight. Yeah, I saw a report that Rick Fox was survived the flight, the crash. Yeah. I heard, then I heard that Rick Fox died in the crash. Then I heard Rick Fox wasn't even on the damn helicopter. Right. And these were all coming from national news agency outlets. Yeah. Now, let's use the first one. Kobe and his four daughters have perished, God forbid, in this, in this horrific crash. So whatever jackass agency was the first to release that because, hey, we got to be the first to, to print right, or the first to get this out there, right? Well, what if you were uh, the the mother of those kids and they were with Kobe or you're the grandparents or the cousins or somebody related or somebody that loves this family, close to the family, and you hear this horrific report, oh, well, hey, we were wrong by three. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It's a huge, huge, gigantic difference. And, you know, as, as horrific as it is, thank God that the other three daughters were not on that flight and are still around. But this is the point about fake news. You know, just because I got a piece of information, I heard it from somebody, I'm going to slap it up there. How damned irresponsible can that possibly be? And then, like I said, you're, you're hearing reports Red Fox died. He survived. He wasn't even on the flight. Four daughters. No, it's one daughter. And all these other things that, that, that swirl on. It, 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 to me, and then now bring it full circle to the thing with Tesla. Same exact thing. You know, you. We as pundits talking about something are going by information that we're seeing out there in a general specific way. It wasn't that we saw this in a blog or, you know, something. It, it, it was, you know, being circulated and talked about. And now, you know, it turns out not to be true. Well, this isn't just in the wrestling world. 
this is, you know, to me in general, when people say fake news, they that, what they're referring to is news that they don't like or they don't agree with. This is what I refer to when I'm talking about fake news. So, you know, the first report I hear is that Kobe Bryant and all four daughters tragically perish in this crash. Oh, my God, what a awful. And then you find out that, well, that's wrong by a factor of 75%. Like, how how much, you know, to the person that, whoever, would, I don't look to see who it is, but to the jackass that first reported that, he, ought to be, he or she ought to be fired from their job, and they ought to feel like a real piece of shit for having gotten it that badly wrong. What do you uh, what do you think about this, TMZ dropping the news before the police department even told Kobe's wife? Well, exa- exactly. It, it's so tasteless and so irresponsible. There's a reason why when you read an, an article in the paper or online and, and it says, you know, the names are being withheld pending notification of the family, that's so that, you, you know, God forbid this mother's not driving down, Kobe's wife's not driving down the, the you know the, the freeway in California and here's he and all four of her daughters are dead, right? I mean, can you imagine getting that kind of news smacking you in the face and then it being wrong? It's easy to point a finger and blame, but this is the culture that's been created, right? I got a scoop. I don't have time to verify it. Because if I, if I take time to do that, somebody else might beat me with a scoop. So I'm just going to slap it out there, and we'll fix it up if we have to afterwards. And you're talking about a family uh, you know, and being wiped out. And, and like I said, awful, awful, awful Kobe and his daughter. But the initial report that I saw was that Kobe and all four daughters perish. And then, and how about if you're related to Rick Fox? You're hearing he's dead, he's not dead, he wasn't even on the flight, he was on the flight. I, I mean, what are... I went to Bethany College is a journalism school. So I quite a few of my peers were journalist majors. And I remember them talking constantly about how you had to validate, verify, verify, verify information before you could print it, then print it, or today release it. Well, it doesn't seem like any, any of the quote-unquote journalists are doing that today. Let's just slap something out there. And, and again, bring this full circle back to Tessa. Now, how many of us have been talking about this and not, whoop, whoop, not even true? God damn, get it right, people. Get it right. Who, what, when, where, and why, and get it goddamn right. Right. I, I agree with you completely. It's, it's crazy that Rick Fox's daughter is actually the one that tweeted that her dad was not dead, and that's how that Rick Fox thing went away. But, you know, you have to go on and, and say that your father's not dead so people will stop putting it all over you know all over news channels it's, it's nuts correct correct and and take it even like a, a step further you know you're you're at the gym and in the shower the whirlpool the sauna you come out and you turn on the news and you're hearing this you know good i, I can't even imagine getting somebody me turning the radio on and hearing that a school bus accident happened and all the kids are dead but the, that my kid rides well well, it's actually not one of them's dead, not all of them. Good Lord. Right. I mean, Jesus. I mean, if you, you know, do you have no concern whatsoever for the feeling of the human beings involved in these stories? That it's just, hey, I'm going to beat the next guy with the story? Wow. How pathetic. How you know, pathetic. One of the things that you were saying about uh, journalists' integrity, I guess, you know, basically you're talking about uh, journalistic integrity. And journalistic integrity doesn't exist now because back then, if you said something wrong on the news, you were done. Your career is yeah. over. 
and, and yeah. then oh. you know now it's not like that. You can you can say things well, that aren't true it, on the news all the time. Yeah, did you hear the, uh, the 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 PMSNBC reported the other day dropped the N bomb. Yeah, I don't think she actually did. I oh, think, I, <laughs> so she was talking about the Knicks that he never played for and well, the Lakers she, and completed the truth. She's from New York, and the only basketball she'd ever reported on was Knicks basketball. And I mean, she's not necessarily a basketball reporter anyway. And I think she made that mistake. I, I feel, I mean, on, I mean, if it oh, would I be feel- different if she if she was a known racist and she said that, then that'd be one thing. But I mean, she's not, and everybody knows she's wow. not. But her entire life, she has wanted to get that big break. She just got her job at MSNBC. That was, you know, uh, her equivalent of of making it. Her dreams have came true, and now she made one mistake in a in a something that was handed to her, and she was like trying to report on it. She made the mistake, and now she is done. Like her entire career well, is over. Uh, yeah, but uh, see, we we in any game we play, if we play Monopoly, if we play. A- poker if we play wrestling if we play whatever there are basic sets of rules we have to adhere by and when the the basic rules as are now apparently that i get to be the arbiter of what's right or wrong and so if you say something wrong even by slipping let's turn this around let's let's say that one of the trump kids was talking about something and slipped and made that same mistake right oh there it is they're nazis we're and I'm not defending the Trump kids. I'm just using the, 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 the diametric opposite example. You have MSNBC who gives this holier-than-thou woke virtue signaling, right? I'm going to put out there that I'm better than Brian. In my experience, the people that have ever in my life acted better than somebody and that their shit didn't stink, they were the ones whose shit stunk the most. They were just good at concealing it. So, But when you play by these games of you know all these basic sets of rules, if using the N-word is the guillotine, and I believe it should be, we've had this discussion before, you can't say, well, this one did it by mistake, and that's okay, or it's, you know, if you're going to have absolutes, if you're going to absolutely judge somebody based on the that, look, I, I've said plenty of stupid things in my life on camera with a microphone nearby, but I listen to that, I don't hear Knicks, or I don't hear Lakers, I hear what sounds pretty specific to be the end bomb to me. I'm sure she didn't mean to say that because who would? Yeah, why would she? Story? Why would she say that? Yeah, certainly going to burn your career. But again, let's say that I don't know what's her. I know somebody that works for NBC News, and they've been eerily silent about what's happened with this, although I've been pressing to find out. And the reason I want to find out is, imagine again Donald Trump Jr. slipping tonight and saying that. Well, you know, if he if he did it, it'd be more believable. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, but see that that's what I'm saying. It's it, it, it's all uh, subjective. If if I want to call you a Nazi, I'm going to say you meant to say it, not slipped. And again, it, it's the definition of fake news. You know what a really um, terrible part of that is is her her co-anchor there. Instead of trying to cover it up or or try to try to do something to, ref, to you know to deflect from it, he, he was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah. <laughs> it's like you can't True. get out of this, lady. I mean, it's it's done. Yeah. Your, your co-anchor yeah. just pointed at you. Yeah, but you know, it, you know, it, it's funny, right? We can laugh about it not because it's not our careers, but it's uh, you know, that's the power, the the, the negative power that, that word invokes. 
and, and should. And so when when somebody like that hears it, boom, his brain or the co-anchor's brain goes on hiatus. Like holy shit, it's like you're fucked, bitch, <laughs> right? And yeah. uh, you, you know. And, and there's no getting out of it. You know, it, it just, you know, we've had this discussion off there how many times. Uh, this is exactly what I think is wrong with identity politics, is that when somebody wraps himself, like that network does, I think. And then, you know, wants to point the finger and start throwing words like Nazi around. You know, that to me is, is, is very offensive because my dad fought real Nazis. I mean, legitimate SS officers. Proud to say my dad killed a high-ranking uh, SS officer uh, with his bare hands. My dad was a fighter in World War II and got into a hand-to-hand combat with a guy and killed him. But, you know, when you throw the word Nazi around, it's not just, well, hey, that's a bad word. I'm going to call Brian a Nazi because I don't like him. No, Nazi is a very specific term. And, you know, it ha- you have to adhere to very certain definitions to call somebody or something Nazi or a fascist or whatever. You know, to hear that thrown around so cavalierly today, and typically from people like MSNBC. Now this happens. We're all human. We're all fallible. We all can make mistakes. But if they don't fire this girl, they did. And, and, they and already have. have. Okay, so so this girl's life is destroyed now. Yeah, she's done for 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 a mistake. She's going to have to go work at Fox about, News now. <laughs> I mean, Fox ain't going to touch her. It's uh, Besides, Fox already has enough. They, they can't handle many more viewers. Hey, but you know what? They, you you segue perfectly for me. I thought you were going to say they can't handle any more racists. No, so you you don't like Fox, right? <laughs> no, not really. Okay. And, but I don't and, like MSNBC either for the well, same well, reason that I don't sure. like Fox. Well, I, I, to me, in the perfect world, our news agencies will give us the who, what, when, where, and why, and not left or right, because I don't believe facts are left or right. But here's the difference to me. For anybody that say, like, wants to slam and smear Fox or people that watch that, here's the difference. What was on Fox at 7 p.m. Sunday night? No idea. Pete Buttigieg had his second town hall on Fox. I know Bernie Sanders had at least two that I know of. I know Klobuchar had one on Fox, and I know Warren's had, I believe, two. And I'm sure they probably had others that I haven't paid attention to over, over time. Andrew Yang did one. When's that? What's that? Andrew Yang did one as well. Okay, so I, I, I figure they, they, you know, they're open platform. They're, they're disseminating news. When's the next time you'll see Donald Trump get a town hall on CNN or MSNBC? Oh, I bet you they would do one right now. That would be huge ratings. <laughs> Why would they not? I bet you he wouldn't do it. But CNN or Why MSNBC, I think, would grab it up quick because it'd be ratings. You see, I, I, I disagree because I, I see it the exact opposite way. Trump goes out every day and talks to, yeah, he, he points the finger and calls them fake news when the time is right. But he also goes out and talks to all the reporters. I've never seen a president this accessible. Most political pundits would say this is a dangerous thing to just freewheel and talk to the press whenever, you know, anytime you walk by them. But I, you don't think Trump would go on CNN or MSNBC? I think he'd love to. I don't think that he would do it. But nevertheless, we've been talking about Trump. We've been talking about Kobe Bryant. We've been talking about all this stuff. We need to talk about the Royal Rumble. And before we talk about Royal Rumble 91, we need to talk about Royal Rumble 2020. I, I know you didn't watch it. I, I'm just guessing. You did not watch it, of course, right? Yeah, it's proud to say I did not. 
Well, you know, we are late on this show. We we were supposed to release this before the Royal Rumble, but when we couldn't uh, do the do the recording, I decided, you know what, we're going to release this after the Royal Rumble so we can talk about 2020 Royal Rumble, and uh, and that's what we're doing here now. Man, it was a fantastic show. Believe it or not, the Royal this is the best Royal Rumble. I mean, my favorite Royal Rumble of all time is 1992. I'm I'm very partial to 1995 as well, but I think this may have been one of the best Royal Rumbles I've ever seen. Based on what? Based on story. The Royal Rumble told a story from start to finish. It, it, it was it was just a great Royal Rumble. We seen returns. We seen MVP return to the WWE. Yep. We, we also seen um, the return of Edge, which is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. And Edge yep. is back, and he looks like a million dollars. I mean, he is ripped up. I'm shocked by how well you know he's put together for this return. Well, now I'm gonna see. You always give me information. I'm gonna give you information. Do you know why he's so ripped? I have no idea. I guess a lot of work. Oh, obviously a lot of work, but he, there's, he, he's also involved in a pretty big television show. Yeah, Vikings. The Vikings, correct. I just I just rented the fifth season, and uh, you know he, he does a great job on there. You know, for me, I'm happy whenever I see the good guys in my business. You know, going out like Dwayne and and and, and uh, Edge. You know, going out and at them. Uh, you know, going out and making you know making their way in other fields in the business in the entertainment industry, because let's face it, these guys, like in Edge's case, Dwayne's case, both, they've been involved in front of cameras for quite a long time of their professional lives. Remember when They they Live came out, right, with Roddy Piper way, way back. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, Classic movie. And, and, yeah, and everybody talked about what a phenomenal movie, how great Piper was in it. Well, the, that's the kind of thing that I've always seen in my peers. You know, the ones that are great at it, you, you know, you'd sit back and, you know, watch a Jake Roberts at work and go, my God, he's incredible on camera. A hearty race, you know, go, go through the list of all these greats. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of stunned. By the way, I just heard earlier today there's a movie called The, the Peanut Butter Falcon that, you know, is getting a little bit of Oscar buzz for next year, uh, a little bit of, you know, award buzz. And uh, I'd seen the trailer for it, but what I didn't see in the trailer was that both Jake – and Mick Foley were in that movie. And it's about a guy with Down syndrome that, like, leaves home, gets sort of like pseudo-kid. It's sort of like Tom Sawyer story, but it's it's centered around wrestling and this guy's love of wrestling. And, you know, it's, you know, one of those, like, you know, great stories, you know, that gets told. And I just heard earlier today at the gym that Mick and Jake were both in that. I have no doubt both of them were incredibly compelling on camera because both of them were incredibly on cam- compelling on camera in wrestling. Uh, it surprises me that there aren't, you know, there's many movies that get made, right? I'm surprised that there aren't more people, you know, from outside the business that look and say, oh, that's wrestling, right? Well, you see those guys. Do you think it's just accident that Dwayne Johnson is so compelling on screen, that Edge is so compelling on screen, that Mick and Jake are so compelling on screen? This is what the greats in our business can do. They've, they've done it for their, all of their professional lives. Yeah, that's 100% true. I can't wait to see that movie, actually. I've heard a lot about that movie, so uh, I will be watching it the first chance that I get. But back to the Royal Rumble, when uh, the Royal Rumble match itself. Now, the other matches on the card, they were good, too. They were uh, good, solid matches. But the Royal Rumble itself, when you see Brock Lesnar comes in at number one, 
Now you think yep. through this thing, you're like, wow, they're totally going to feed this entire Royal Rumble to Brock Lesnar because he is just throwing people out left and right. He he actually tied the record for um, for toss outs, and he made a record of his own because he did 13 eliminations in a row. All 13 in a row were all done by uh, Brock Lesnar, which ties him for the most eliminations and gives him his own record for them being in a row. But um, then... How long did he last? He he lasted... Uh, well, well, before we get there, we'll talk... Keith Lee is one of those guys he tossed out, but Keith Lee got the face-to-face with Brock Lesnar and dominated him for for like a few minutes and that was huge, in my opinion. Uh, Keith Lee is going to be a major star. I love how they put him in the the Rumble and they put him face-to-face with Lesnar. But, of course, he ends up tossing Keith Lee and Braun Strowman out while they're fighting amongst each other. But Drew McIntyre comes in. Now, you got Ricochet, Brock Lesnar, and Drew McIntyre, who had just came in. Ricochet gets a low blow on Brock, and then Drew kicks him in the face with the, with the Claymore, and he tumbles out of the ring to the floor huge uh i mean huge putting over of drew there you know even though there was a low blow it still gave drew a huge push in the rumble then we see edge we think edge is gonna win that was the only rumble because normally when it gets down to like the final like eight guys you're like okay i can tell you these two are the only two that could win but when it got down to the final eight you really didn't know any of these guys could have won and you're thinking you know the wwe is going to screw up they almost did they almost screwed up and let roman win and if they would have let roman win that match all the boos would have been back and he would have been booed out of the building if he would have won this thing but he didn't win and the winner was drew mcintyre and that was not expected yeah it's Interesting. Like everybody knows my affinity. Uh, anybody that followed my career for swerves. You know, I I, I think a well placed swerve like that is the kind of stuff that a gets fans talking, starts it can build momentum behind somebody. Uh, especially when you've had Brock and you know Edge and all these other names in there, uh, Roman and the other names that you expect. It's a good. You know, I'd have to watch the match to be able to give it a you know a, a, a thumbs up, thumbs down, or what I like or dislike. You know, but what I what I'm hearing you say, full transparency, I didn't watch a second of it. What I hear you saying happened in the match is is smart. Imagine actually telling a story in a match like that. Who'd have ever thought that might work? <laughs> right. Well, it definitely did work for me because I was expect my expectations were very low, and I came out of there on a on a wrestling high. So I was definitely happy about it. And honestly, I, you know, I've been wrong before about what you're going to like and what you're not going to like, but I honestly believe that the Royal Rumble match itself you would have actually liked. It's putting you out on a limb. I have to watch it now to, to, to see if so or not, if I can even get it. I had seen a headline. Was there some kind of confrontation in the back before the match? There was a confrontation between Matt Riddle and Brock Lesnar. Uh, Brock went up to Matt Riddle and grabbed him by the shoulder and turned him around and said, Kid, you need to stop tagging me and stuff because we're never, ever going to work together. Really? Yes. And Matt Riddle got thrown out of the uh, rumble really quick. He was in there for a little while and then he got thrown out really quick. And a lot of reports are saying that's because of his heat backstage that he was originally supposed to have a bigger role in the Royal Rumble, but they, they ended up taking that from him because of his heat. Now see that, that to me is, is where the thing goes off the skids. If something happened 
happens personally between me and you, you know, off the podcast. That shouldn't affect us doing this podcast. You know, if they had planned on pushing Riddle for whatever reason, then changed because he got heat with this person or that person, that's politics. You know, politics, if you haven't paid attention, has done a devastating damage to our business. To me, let those two guys go at it in, in the ring. I think know? it's because he has heat with many people. I think it has a lot to do with respect. Uh, he doesn't seem to be a person that has a lot of respect for anything or anyone. Now, I might be wrong about that. I don't know the guy. And as a fan, I think he's awesome. But I believe that it's it's all about uh, his lack of respect for anybody and everybody. Well, then WWE should have had him playing in a key role. Uh, if that's, again... I'm just going off what you're telling me because, again, in full transparency, I didn't see any of it. I've, I've been, you know, pretty busy this past weekend. Uh, but you know, if that's the case, if WWE had him planned in a in a higher spot and then he was eliminated because of that, and that's a lot of innuendo and 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 you know, you know, trying to figure out what's going on here, you know, based on things that you've heard. If that's the case, then they should have had a, had him planned in any kind of key role if he's been disrespectful in the dressing room. Well. Uh, you know, I, I don't know the ins and outs. I'm not sure, you know, if, if what I'm saying is 100% accurate, but I'm just telling you what I've gathered from what I've what I've read. Interesting. All right, so uh, let's get into the Royal Rumble 91. Uh, it was a great, great Royal Rumble in itself, and if you're ready to talk about it, so am I. I'll, I'll give, you, give you my assumptions based on what you tell me. <laughs> All right, Royal Rumble 91 was the fourth annual Royal Rumble pay-per-view. The date was January 19th, 1991, and it was a Saturday, one of only two WWE main roster pay-per-views to take place on a Saturday, due to that year's placement of the Super Bowl, of course. 1991 was a controversial year in the WWE because the American hero, Sergeant Slaughter, had turned on America to align himself with Iran. This would be the event where Slaughter would get a shot at the Ultimate Warrior for the World Championship. According to the Wrestling Observer, there were those in the locker room and office alike that were considering resigning from the company following Slaughter's victory, seeing it as making light of a real like a very real loss of life overseas. NBC sportscaster Bob Costas refused to even be a part of WrestleMania 7 due to this angle, and believe it or not, the president tried to shut WrestleMania 7 down and asked Vince McMahon if he would not do WrestleMania 7 over this angle, which is pretty crazy that the president was involved. Uh, Bret Hart conveyed the troubled locker room sentiment in his autobiography. He said some of us among the wrestlers debated whether wrestling was too much of a cartoon to make light of something as serious as war, especially one where the U.S. was bracing for a high body count. Where is a 26-year-old Shane Douglas's head at as far as this controversy goes? I don't recall the, the controversy offhand, but you know, I, I'm guessing based off of you know, like the stuff that you just said, you know, a lot of this stuff is packed away in the back of my brain and you know, it's when I hear something like that. I hadn't known that the president had gotten involved, but you can see how, you know, again, remember how many times I say, you know, history is contextual only through contemporary eyes so we can't look back at something in 2020 and say well back in the 1990s right that was really fucked up because of this that or the other thing because we're looking at it through 2020 eyes i vividly remember the iraq war i remember us you know at the hotels getting ready to go on the road like for that evening's event and you'd sit and drag it out because you couldn't pull yourself away from the television screen you know this was the first time we're seeing a camera on a missile heading toward a building and following it in and you were afraid that if you turned your head you were going to miss something there was a huge amount of patriotism in the country you know because of this certain where my sentiments would have lied but 
you know, I don't recall the, the controversy in the company. You know, it seemed, seemed to me like, uh, at, at least from where I'm sitting right now, it seemed to me that that was, you know, stuff on the back burner. I don't recall hearing guys talk about that in any kind of specific way other than, you know, what we were watching on television. I mean, again, this is the first time, and you know, we'd all grown up hearing about World War II and Korea and Vietnam War and, you know, all of these things and learned about it in history class, you know, but now you're suddenly seeing a war play out live in real time on television. And, you know, that had never been seen before. And so it was damn compelling television to watch and see how strong America looked in that war. You know, I, I forget the, I think it was like 118 hours uh, in the air. And I think the whole war was like 118 hours uh, with America's involvement. You know, so you can understand how, you know, the country was very patriotic. And if the president called, again, I have no information whatsoever about that, but if the president called, you could imagine that it would have had something to do with that. You know, like, you know, putting on a guy who's ostensibly switched sides and, you know, an American hero been on G.I. Joe and all of that. And now suddenly is, you know, fighting for the other team. You know, it, it, you could see where a politician that doesn't quite understand wrestling can get caught up in that. Uh, I recently heard about Sergeant Slaughter getting a lot of heat for uh, the stolen Balor law. You know, like if you go out and impersonate a, a veteran to get some kind of tangible benefit, you know, like raising funds or, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, benefit that, you know, you could be held legally liable for that. I don't know when that law was passed, but I, I would guess it would have vestiges in, in times like that. Well, you know, that it also came out that while Bill Irwin never really played hockey and Duke the Dumpster Drossy <laughs> wasn't a garbage man either. It's just crazy. You know, I don't know what to believe anymore. Now, now I'm going to tell you Santa Claus never existed. What? The dean the dean didn't really have seven PhDs. What? It, no. It was just made up. Yeah, it, was actually, it was actually eight Troy Martin. Had, you are but. fucking up my childhood, okay? So just, just chill out with all this uh, inside information. But, you know, I was nine years old when this Royal Rumble took place. And, uh, you know, right, but the, one of the reasons, you know, for me, the, the controversy didn't exist either. I didn't know anything about it. I actually found out more about this controversy whenever I listened to uh, WrestleMania 7 episode of Something to Wrestle With with Bruce Pritchard and uh, Conrad Thompson. And they were talking about how the war started right before WrestleMania. So literally right before WrestleMania was about to happen, the war was announced, and that's why the president got involved. There's a that is a great episode if you've never listened to it. Something to wrestle with. It's a, a tremendous episode, like most of the episodes that they have on that uh, on that show, and it's got a lot of the inside information about how crazy things were. You know that Sergeant Slaughter he had to stay in the arena the night of the Royal Rumble, the night that we're talking about, until three a.m. just so he could safely get to his car. Oh, I believe it. You know, again, I vividly do remember the the. the the thrush, much like after 9-11 for kids that are a bit younger, the, the surge of patriotism that happened after 9-11 was very reminiscent of what we saw in the country, I think rightfully so, after that war broke out. All right, so as we go into the beginning of Royal Rumble 1991, I absolutely love the intro for one reason, and do you know what that reason is? What's that? Now I have a voicer of Vince McMahon saying the words, Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas! <laughs> Probably the only time in his entire career. Yeah, he said it. He said it right there in the intro, and I have it now, and I'm probably going to use it on every episode from here on out. But uh, <laughs> I definitely have that now, and that was a great intro piece for me. Um, Shane Douglas! Very well, full, interesting. Full, full, 
full forewarning. If you do that, if you use that clip and, and, and Vince mentioning Shane Douglas's name, you're gonna you're you're gonna forever be off Vincent Mann's Christmas card list. Oh man, I'll stop getting all those Christmas cards he always sends me. Shane Douglas. <laughs> So as we go into the first match, we saw newcomer Jerry Sags of the Nasty Boys defeat Jake the Snake Roberts' brother, Sam Houston. Now, this was a dark match that only the live crowd had seen. We saw Jerry solo here due to his tag team partner, Brian Knobs, being substituted into the Royal Rumble for the Honky Tonk Man. Now, where Honky Tonk Man had just quit the company. Not sure why the Nasty Boys were here at all. But to split them up, there had to have been a pretty big scramble to fill this gap. Were you privy to any of those complications with Honky Tonk Man's absence? I, I wasn't. You know, because of my role in the Royal Rumble, I was pretty focused on the match. Yeah, that would be my guess, you know, with personnel in and out, which always happens in our business. Now, oftentimes, you have to, like Dusty used to say, make chicken salad out of chicken shit and try to figure out a way to fill in these slots because somebody left or whatever else. That would be my guess is what happened. Now, I'm not sure when Honky Tonk Man will ever come up again. So, do you have any good Honky Tonk stories? Do I have any good Honky Tonk stories? Yeah. Did you ever uh, spend any time with the Honky Tonk Man? Uh, not, never traveled with him or anything, but, you know, Wayne's a, he's a character, you know, and I, you know, a lot of people love him. A lot of people hate him, and there's you know all that in between. Uh, I've always gotten along great with Wayne. I, I have no real stories on the top of my head, you know, that other than just you know Wayne being Wayne in the dressing room. You know, I've got a really good honky tonk man story. When I was a kid, I was like eight, eight or nine years old, and we went and seen the honky tonk man at the Fayetteville Memorial Building in West Virginia. And we're there, and there's also a couple other people on the on the show. Tim Horner's on the show. Um, Ivan Koloff and uh, Nikolai Volkov are also on the show. And I had backstage passes. My mom had got me backstage passes, and we were going back there to meet the Honky Tonk Man. I was so excited about this. So the Honky Tonk Man's going to give us a tour of the backstage. And he's going through, and he's introducing us to wrestlers and showing us different things. And he's like, and Nikolai Volkov's in here. And he opened the door up. And like four or five kids my age see Nikolai Volkov standing there butt naked in the shower because of the honky tonk man. He was pretty upset yeah, about yeah. it. He slammed the door shut and everything else. It was it was pretty funny. Yeah, that sounds kind of like the dressing room. <laughs> you know, big 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 news flash. There's naked wrestlers running around back there. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and we never thought about that. We just thought everybody was back there. You know, flexing. <laughs> Well, after that, the Royal Rumble pay-per-view officially kicked off with the Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty versus the Orient Express with Mr. Fuji. The Rockers would be the victors here. Now, this is a time when you, Marty, and Shawn were pretty close, right? Oh, yeah. Yep, sure was. Did you ever have a friendship with Mr. Fuji? Did I ever what? Did you ever have a friendship with Mr. Fuji? Yeah, I knew Fuji pretty well. Uh, you know, he was uh, he was a character. You know, you'd be sitting at a in a you know nice hotel uh, lobby, like a Renaissance or some high end hotel, and you'd be sitting at a table in the lobby, you know, having a drink or whatever, and you'd hear what the hell? Look over and Fuji smile, and he just pissed under the table. Uh, <laughs> You know, he, uh, you know, another time we were on a flight back from, uh, we were 
Yakima that night. Yakima, Washington had a flight in Seattle, maybe. It was a red-eye flight. And you get on those flights, you've been you know running the road for several weeks and exhausted. And the last thing you wanted to do was be up all night and watch the movie on the flight. You know, so you play a hand of cards. Joey Morella was on that flight. Uh, Fuji, a couple others. We were up in first class, and I had just gone on the road and had met that uh, Dr. Felix Unger, WWF, WWE fame, infamy. I thought he was like some kind of official doctor for the company because it's but I'm just on the road and I walk in and there's a you know a, a, like an examination room set up and they draw blood and they're giving like an exam and at the end of the exam he said uh, you have any any problems. And I said, well, you know, there's, you know I, I got insomnia. I used to have insomnia really bad on the road. And he wrote me a prescription very quickly for something I'd never heard of before. And, you know, uh, I'd gone to the field right before that red-eye flight. And I get on the flight and, you know, into the flight. And next thing I know, I wake up and I'm in my living room. And what wakes me up is I hear pounding on my door. Now, this is like winter time. And I open my eyes and I'm, I'm laying on my living room floor. And the knocking that I hear is my mailman. And the reason he's knocking is I'm laying on my living room floor naked. And I'm thinking, how, I don't remember getting off the plane. I don't remember getting in my car. How the hell did I get home? I look out and my car is pulled like sideways in two spots. Well, I immediately went in and flushed the rest of those pills down the, down the toilet. I, you know, I wasn't going to full stuff like that. And I started into my day. And, you know, first thing I do is I get showered and I go to the tanning booth to get a tan and, the lady, her, lady, her name was Sue. She looks at me and she goes, what are you doing here? She said, we're going to get a tan. She goes, you were here already today. I said, what? So it was like halfway between my house and the airport. And she said, yeah, I don't remember you fell asleep back in, and this is before they had timers on the bed. She said, you fell asleep back in the night. I was pounding on the door and woke you up. And I remembered like a, like a distant dream, somebody knocking on a door. I remember thinking to myself, like, well, I don't know what's in those damn pills, but you know, I'm never never going to take those damn things again and have it. Uh, you know, I get back on the road the next week and I'm hearing similar type stories from Joey Morella and Fuji and everybody else. You know, I was like, holy shit, you know, crazy the, the stuff that does to you, you know. For sure. So talking about Mr. Fuji, I heard at the Jake the Snake Roberts comedy show that Mr. Fuji was the rib master to the point where he actually <laughs> fed the Valiant's dog to them in Chile. Now, I don't know if well, you've ever uh, heard that before, but it's it's something where the, the Valiant's had been messing with Fuji, and Fuji kidnapped their dog and cooked it in Chile and fed it to them at his table. Pretty insane. You, you mean dog napple. <laughs> First of all, yeah, Fuji was one of the world-renowned rivers, and you know you wanted to stay away from Fuji like you ribbing you, you know. And the old thing we were always taught was if you get ribbed, you know, never sell it. Just take it and just go on about your business, because otherwise, you know, somebody like Fuji would see you reacting. He'd get a re, you know, he'd get a kick out of seeing you sell the rib. Um, I didn't hear the valiance, but I did hear that where they lived, I think it was around Morristown, Tennessee, that there was a property dispute with their next-door neighbor. And this had been going on for some time, and finally Fuji you know, went over to the guy and said, listen, we're neighbors, let's bury the hatch, I want to have you over for dinner, and brought them over for dinner and fed them. That's the story I'd always heard, fed the next-door neighbors their own dog. Uh, 
with you know some kind of Chinese Japanese uh, cooking uh, recipes. Uh, there is another rib that you know that I that I'd always heard as a kid about Fuji with Bob Orton uh, Jr. Uh, that you know so Fuji ribbed him and and uh, H bombed him, and he woke up naked, tied down you know spread eagle on the top of the car driving. 75 miles an hour down the highway. And I heard that happen in Boston or around Boston. I didn't see it. I just remember hearing the story. But these were the types of things that you had to always, especially as a kid, had to always be on your toes about, you know, to, to make sure you didn't leave something laying around or your bag open or, you know, whatever, because, you know, you, you might make yourself an easy target. Those old-time rivers like that, for the most part, they, you know, they, they'd rib you if you did something to deserve it. But they'd also really just entertain themselves. And uh, Fuji got me really good one time. I was in, we were in New Mexico, and I had a match, and then I had a very, very tight window to make my flight home that night. And, uh, you, know, the, you know, talking about the dressing room, everybody, you know, oh, yeah, I got to you know, have my match, get back and get changed and get to the airport. And I came back, and I was, this is back, remember the ruse, tennis shoes, the, the high-top tennis shoes, almost like boots? Yeah. And uh, I came back, and the, my shoes, my two ruse, were padlocked together with the string all the way down at the bottom, like by the toes. So I'd either <laughs> cut my strings or take, you know, half an hour to unlace my shoes and get them back. So I, was, I looked at them, and I was ready to sell them. I said, oh, shit, it must have been Fuji. So I just grabbed my shoes and said, hey, see you next time, guys. Took off on the road and then cussed under my breath all the way to the airport, you know, to, in the cab to... You know, that he had ribbed me. But, yeah, that was Fuji. It always – another time I fell asleep on the plane and I woke up to my fingernails all painted pink. Uh, you know, just shit like that. That was just a normal day on the road. It sounded <laughs> like Mr. Fuji was more of a criminal than a ribber. I mean, he's feeding dogs to people and and <laughs> tying men to, to moving cars naked. Sounds like – I'm surprised Mr. Fuji didn't uh, didn't get in trouble for any of those ribs. I remember what I said, to look through history with contemporary lenses is a fool's game. By today's standards, yeah, you pull a rib like half, you know, 90% of those ribs I just mentioned, you'd be in jail for today or be getting a summons to the court. Uh, back then, it was just the wrestling business. And, you know, you know looking back, I, I never had any of the stiff ribs. There were some guys that would stiff rib, you know, shit in bags. Or, you know, I'm sure you've heard the story about Outback Jack, you know, getting ribbed out of the company. Uh, stuff like that, but you know that was usually reserved for guys that were a pain in the ass, or the guys that bitched or you know threatened that kind of thing. And then you know, of course, the guys are going to rib you and, and uh, have fun with you. I, I remember one time, I don't know who was behind this rib, but uh, uh, Spiros Arion came in when he was doing the coach thing with Mister Perfect, and somebody put super glue on his on his whistle. <laughs> So and he couldn't put his whistle in his blower all the way down to the ring, and he couldn't get his whistle out of his mouth. You know, just <laughs> stupid, silly shit like that that just made everybody laugh. Well, if you're broke a, up the monotony of being on the road. Well, if you're a fan of ribs and you like to hear rib stories, you should definitely go see Jake the Snake Roberts's comedy show. If he comes around near your town, make sure to go check out Jake the Snake Roberts's comedy show because it is plum full of rib stories and they are absolutely great oh i'm sure he's got a million of them to tell i'd love I, next i'll definitely pay attention i didn't know he's out on the road doing that now but next 
If he comes near Pittsburgh, I'll sure as hell be there. Yeah, you definitely want to be. He tells a story about Rick Rude where, you know, Rick Rude would kiss women, you know, in the ring. Yeah. And uh, apparently Jake Roberts had been with that woman earlier and she had done something with her mouth and kept something <laughs> inside of her mouth when she went to kiss Rick Rude. <laughs> And Rick Rude almost killed Jake over that. Oh, yeah. I'm guessing Rick, you know, Rick, Rick wasn't necessarily the most even-killed guy. He was a great guy, but, you know, he pretty high-strung. I'm sure he didn't go very much for that. <laughs> a little <laughs> salty. I guess it was a little bit salty that night. It was a little salty <laughs> from what I hear. But, yeah, uh, if you want to hear rib stories, that's a great place to do it. Jake the Snake Roberts Comedy Tour is fantastic. I, I absolutely loved it. I wasn't even sure, you know, what to expect when I went seeing Jake Roberts do comedy, but uh, it was definitely something that was that was really awesome. I've gotten to see Bobby Fulton's comedy show. I've gotten to see Jake Roberts' comedy show, and of course Mick Foley's comedy show. All three very awesome. I would love to see Rob Van Dam's. I hear, uh, you know, he's he had done comedy there for a little while. I don't know if he's still doing it, but I would love to see his, and I'd also love to see Dolph Ziggler's. Dolph Ziggler actually came near here not too long ago, and I, I was booked up and could not make it, but I really wish I would have. Is he still with the Fed? Yeah, he sure is. Because, I, I, you know, again, I don't watch their show very often, and I hadn't. that's one of the names I hadn't heard for a while. I've been a big fan of But, you know, back to Jake for a second. Uh, I am, honest to God, just so happy to hear that story that Jake's out doing that, and, you know, he looks great. Uh you know, he, as I've mentioned before, he was one of the guys that I really feared. You know, with as many people that died in our business, uh, with as bad as he was on stuff, I really, really always expected to get a phone call about Jake. I am so thankful that he's still here because he was he's one of the genuine masters of our business when it comes to psychology. And uh, that he's still here and he's been able to put those demons behind him. And, he, you know, if you've known anything about his story, he's got a ton of demons that he dealt with, you know, most of his life. Uh, but to hear that he's put them past in his past and that he's, you know, been able to forge a relationship with his daughters and, you know, that he's out doing comedy and still here and looking great, man, to me, that's just, uh, just fucking awesome. Good for Jake, man. Good, good, good news to hear. One of his daughters is actually the manager of his comedy tour. You actually contact her to get in, in contact with Jake to do uh, a comedy show. I uh, actually, I was, I, I happened to be the promoter for that comedy show. So I got to spend a lot of time with Jake that night. And he, he is a really great person. I, I love talking to yeah. him. Super nice guy. And man, he's got so many stories to tell. Honestly, the stories he told me person to person were just as good as the ones he told on stage. It was, it was a, oh, yeah. it was a damn good night for sure. So definitely go see Jake Roberts. If you get a chance. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to use this time to take a quick break to remind you of our sponsor, the official attorney of Franchise with Shane Douglas, the one and only best lawyer in the world, Stephen P. New. Since 2001, drug companies dumped a billion opioid pills in West Virginia, causing over 3,000 overdose deaths and thousands of babies born addicted by no fault of their own. I'm attorney Stephen New. If you're the grandparent or guardian of a child born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, call me. I'll help you seek just compensation. Call the law offices of Stephen P. New at 1-844-BAD-PILLS before time runs out. 
350 days. Legends, champions, survivors. 350 days a year as a wrestler on the road. Maybe it's a sickness. 350 days a year. A lot of physical pain. A lot of loneliness. You have no home life whatsoever. Piper and me riding down the road, doing eight balls of cocaine. I'm sure it broke up marriages. How many guys uh, in the wrestling business have a family left when they're done? Most of them lose it. I couldn't have children. I couldn't put them on a turnbuckle while mommy worked. I hit the bars. And that was my character. Sitting in a room with a bunch of wrestlers doing cocaine. We really got to know each other. I would take a lot of downers, and uh, I, I did have problems with the uh, with the downers. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I was not a faithful husband from the first day, the whole time on the road. I lived a double life. I needed it. It was like I'm not getting the love I needed home. Would I do? Would I do? Oh my God! I'm afraid to say I would do it again. I wouldn't change it. No regrets. Well, I want to tell you, you know. To make some big money in wrestling, you had to wrestle every night of the week, $30 every day. So you had to wrestle six and seven times every week just to earn your money. 350 days on the road with wrestlers, a living hell. 350 days, now available on Prime Video and iTunes. For more information, go to 350daysthemovie.com. Hello, Rich Quick here with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. <laughs> now the date is January 19th, 1991, Miami, Florida, baby. And a young baby-faced Shane Douglas is about to make his debut and only appearance actually in the Royal Rumble. And he did very well. I mean, he lasted 26 minutes. What, could you, could you last 26 minutes? Yeah. That's what I thought. So, I would say that Shane did very well. So, so well, in fact, that Gorilla Monsoon and Roddy Piper acknowledged the ovation Shane got from the crowd as he walked up that aisle after being eliminated by Brian Mobs. Really? Why in the, why in the hell did Brian Mobs make it to the final three? Okay, okay, you know what? You know what? We don't have time for this. Uh, point being, I rewatched this pay-per-view and a wave of fondness and nostalgia washed all over me. I mean, honest to God, I was transported back to my childhood. I mean, I I remembered everything. Well, I, I, I did forget about Saba Simba, but that's a conversation for another day. But I was a kid again, and it made me laugh. I mean, why did I love this pay-per-view so much? I mean, was it for the superior wrestling? Oh, no, hell no. Of course not. I mean, no. The Ultimate Warrior was involved. Are you crazy? Yeah. No. See, I loved it because despite the cheesy gimmicks and the terrible overacting, looking at you, Sergeant Slaughter, I remember that in 1991, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I thought a lot of things were cool in the early 90s. Buttonfly jeans, and that Caesar haircut that was supposed to make me look like George Clooney. It did not. So... Here is what I want you to do this week, okay? This week, you go make a memory. Do something that 
30 years from now, you can look back on and say, well, that was silly. Man, that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I, I would recommend avoiding that haircut, though. Okay? Well, uh, so until next week, this has been Rich Quick with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. Next up, the big boss man would defeat the Barbarian in about 14 minutes and 15 seconds. Longer match than I expected here. Do you have any good stories about Barbarian or boss man? Uh, absolutely. I know both very well. Both great guys. Ray Trailer, you know, boss man. Uh, he was in my wedding, actually. One, you know, one of the few guys in my wedding uh, party. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, we we had been, uh, you know, good friends since we met on the road. Just a just a great, great guy. I, I was absolutely shocked when he passed away because I, you know, all those years I'd known him, I'd never seen him take a pill. I'd seen him drink beer. I'd never seen him do anything harder than that, you know, myself. And so when that happened, I was really, really shocked and thrown by it. But, you know, Ray was like a big kid. A big, big kid. You know, he had uh, the thing that you don't don't realize when you see like boss man segments and stuff is he had this you know this gigantic man had this little kid's voice. You know, like, hey Brian, how you doing? You know, it was like a real high pitched uh, kid's voice. We went one night uh, after a show in St. Louis at the Kill Auditorium. Me, him, Perfect, uh, Haku, uh, you know, the whole compendium of guys, the whole dressing room pretty much was over at a uh, bar in East St. Louis, across the river from St. Louis which is very near where they had the riots out there and burned the town down and everything. Long story short, there was a guy that kept coming over to take a seat, a chair from Haku's table. Haku, I forget who else, a bunch of guys sitting there. And Haku kept grabbing the chair and, you know, telling the guy, you know, buy you a beer, blah, blah, blah. And after like the second, third, fourth time, this guy comes back and takes the chair again. And Haku warns him. And the guy said something smart ass to him. Haku came up out of that chair and grabbed him in his tongue hold. I always thought that was a work. And when he grabbed him by this tongue hold, the guy like went stiff and his eyes were popped open. And all of a sudden, like a movie, chairs start flying through the air. And perfect, I remember, got hit in the head with that blonde hair of his. And you could see the blood instantly. Big Ray, boss man, grabbed me and pushed me against the wall. He goes, let's get out of here, Shane. <laughs> we're sliding down the wall to get out of this bar. It was like watching a movie. Chairs and tables flying through the air and people getting hit and punched. It was like a full-blown riot playing out right in front of our eyes. We get outside, and, you know, all these cop cars pull in, and they, you know, 20 cops run into the place. And it sounds like the riot's still going on, even though everybody's outside of the bar. That was the night that they, you know, manhandled Haku and put him in, like, two pair of handcuffs, and they cart him out, literally carrying him, like two two cops on each leg, two on each arm, one's got him by the hair, and they put him on his knees outside the bar, and we all watched this, and the, the head cop, Captain, the, the, the boss cop, walks up and pulls out his nightstick and flicks it open, one of those, you know, those graphite sticks that they carry, and he swung with Haku on his knees, he swung from behind, like, like he was swinging to kill him, hit him right upside the head, and honest to God, on my mother and father's grave, Haku no-sold it. And like this went crazy. Wow. And that's when all the, all the cops pulled their cans of mace out and they emptied their cans of mace, spraying them right in the face. And that finally took them down. And if you go back to that time and look around 1990, you'll remember seeing Haku with a great big purple jelly bean on his face. That's what that was from, from that night. So that, you know, that's my big boss man story. So you got one on Barbarian? Uh, yeah, something I can't tell here, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> no, Barb's a great guy too. Uh, so you know, a big, big, just you know, back then, cock strong and still just a big cock strong guy, right? And we were in Columbus, Ohio. I'm just a kid on the road, you know, for a couple of years at this point. And you know, he used to always play around with me, like ah, oh, pretty boy, you know, that kind of thing. You know, we went and he told me to go you know, duck my duck his clothesline or something, and I, you know, I come off the ropes and I do what he told me and clenches me from behind, like like a vice grip, you know, boom, grabs me. He goes, ah, pretty blonde boy. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to get butt fucked in front of 10,000 people and there ain't a damn thing I can do about it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God he was just ribbing me, right? It's, uh, but he's a great guy, man. Both those guys, great, great guys. All right, so after this, we would see one of the main events as Sergeant Slaughter would become the WWF champion by being one of the very few men to get a win over the Ultimate Warrior with help from the Macho Man who busted a glass scepter over the warrior's head one question i had here that you probably don't have an answer for is why was this match not right before the rumble being a main event for the belt good question uh i don't have an answer for that you know it's a bad man i mean just the finish you described uh which i had forgotten until you described it tells me that you know they a vince you know they had put a lot of resources in the building jim elway got to being the warrior right and so you've got uh much like brock lesnar today in a very different vein but now you've got a guy that you've built up as being this invincible you know huge muscle-bound guy how do you beat him so you bring out macho man who i'm guessing was uh King of the Ring at the time with his scepter and, and do all that. But that's heat. That's heat on, on Macho. It's uh, heat for uh, Slaughter. And the fans thinking, well, the next time Ultimate Warrior gets in the ring, you're going to stretch your ass. You know, so it, it's, it's good booking on how to get around an obstacle. Like, how do you beat an unbeatable guy? The guy that you've built to be unbeatable. And there are ways to do it and to do it properly. So after this match, the Mountie then would defeat Coco Beware in a match that would be cut later from the VHS release another question you probably don't have an answer for is why have this match so late in the card if you're only going to cut it later on my guess would be just uh, it doesn't fit in the the scheme of building a a show is the the match with uh warrior probably went short and they needed something to fill up some more time to to extend it out to the time of the pay-per-view again that's just off the top of my head i don't i'm not reciting something i know fact on but uh it, it seems to be an ill-placed match at that stage you know after having that kind of a match with you know macho involved and everything else now before we get into the royal rumble match itself we see dusty Rhodes and dustin Rhodes take on the million dollar man ted dibiase in virgil this would be dusty and dustin's last match with the company before heading to wcw they lose here to dibiase and virgil but afterwards we see the face turn of virgil which uh, would eventually lead to Virgil's only belt in the WWF, the million dollar title. Did the boys in the back know that Dusty and Dustin were leaving here? I don't remember. I, I really don't. I, I can't recall. Well, I know you were super clo- close with Dustin at the time. I mean, uh, you and you and Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels and Dustin were the four amigos. So yeah. But did, did he tell you, hey, I'm I'm this is I'm done. I'm done tonight. I don't recall him. I don't recall any of that. My guess is he would have told us, but I I, I have zero recollection of the match uh, or or any of that going on. Do you think the WWF thought they had a breakout star here with Virgil? Um. Well. You know, when you look at wrestling, especially at that time frame, right? I mean, you know, we've talked before about, you know, the, the, the stuff today that you couldn't do on uh, on television today. WWF, especially then, as the wrestling business was, it wasn't just WWF, played on all those key stereotypes. 
You know, that that was one of the ways that they drew their crowds. And so, you know, to have a guy that looked like Mike, you know, uh, uh, Virgil, you know, it looks like a million dollars. I had been, uh, when I first, very first broke into the business, I've been on several shows with Mike when he was doing the, like, sort of Apollo Creed type character. I remember one night in Madison, West Virginia, uh, he uh, where Gary Dameron runs now, where they, uh, he gave out, no exaggeration, 25, 35 spots. And of course, every one of those spots made him look good. And then we get into the match, I think it was a tag match. And in the match, he proceeded to screw up every one of his, <laughs> one of his own spots. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, those of us that knew him, like, you know, he, Pittsburgh guy. So I had been around Mike and, and, and knew Mike pretty well. I, I, I couldn't imagine Vince putting a lot of time or money into him because of his limitations in the ring. Uh, but again, Vince at this time, this is where Vince really starts going into, you know, the, the, the you know, almost like what today would be called identity politics. Uh, so I got a black, you know, good looking black guy built like a brick shit house, looks good on camera, you know, so let's go with it. I, it, it checks that box. But, you know, those of us that knew Mike knew that that was a limit, they had great limitations. All right, it's now time for the Royal Rumble match. The participants were Bret Hart, Dino, uh, Dino Bravo, Greg Valentine, Paul Roma, the Texas Tornado, Rick Martel, Saba Simba, Bushwhacker Butch, Jake Roberts, Hercules, Tito Santana, The Undertaker, Jimmy Snuka, The British Bulldog, Demolition Smash, Legion of Doom Hawk, Macho Man Randy Savage, Legion of Doom Animal, Demolition Crush, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Earthquake, Mr. Perfect, Hulk Hogan, Haku, Jim Neidhart, Bushwhacker Luke, Brian Nobbs, The Warlord, Tugboat, and yourself. Yes. Now, Macho Man no-showed the match, making the total 29 men. Uh, was that a storyline you know, to go along with the fact that the Macho Man was running from Ultimate Warrior? Or was there a real reason that Macho Man couldn't participate? Again, I don't recall specifics. My guess would be based off of what they had done earlier, uh, that you know that, that was some playoff on that. Then again, it, it's completely possible that there was some kind of politicking going on. I don't know that. I've just you know, known the company like I knew it at that time, where it could be either or a combination of the two. All right, you came into this match at number 17, and I've always wanted to know, how does this process work? You're given a number, and then they tell you who you're throwing out and who's throwing you out? Or, or what is the behind-the-scenes process of the Royal Rumble match? Yeah, well, you know, because there's so many people involved, you've got some pretty specific things you've got to remember. You don't need to remember your entrance number because they're going to play your music and you're going to go out when, when that is. But you have to very specifically remember remember, okay, I've got to go out after this wrestler and before that wrestler and being thrown out by this guy. You know, so there's a lot of moving parts. You're in a ring with 29 other guys. Uh, you know, you're trying to keep your eyes open as to where are those guys is the guy that goes out right before me is he still here and the guy that's supposed to throw me out is he still here and where are they in the ring and you know keeping all those things going on meanwhile you have 26 other guys you know grabbing you and you know doing spots and stuff with you so you know a lot to remember there in the back uh, they'll have a you know the entrance order and then the exit order so you've really got to stay focused on all those things because if you know if you go out before the guy that's supposed to go out right before you you know, you throw it off because now, say he's the guy that's supposed to throw somebody else out prior to that. Now that throws everything off. And so, you know, the guys, that, that, that's one of the things that I mean whenever I talk about how eloquent the guys that are real pros at this business, how eloquent it is when they get it right. Because imagine you've got 29 guys in a, in a match. And by the way, the building that night was 
stifling hot, so hot inside and steamy that there was like a fog up around the light. Um, it was like breathing hot, wet air. And, uh, you know, those television lights, especially back then before the high definition cameras we have now, they'd like to place up like the sun to be able to televise it. And, you know, so you have a lot of moving parts going on. And then you have a lot of the other spots like uh, Butch. Right, walking down to the ring, you know, doing the uh, not the sheep orders, the uh, what's the other name? Uh, the bushwhacker, bushwhacker walk. Yeah, doing the bushwhacker walk gets in and gets grabbed and thrown right out the other side and hits the floor and goes right back the same way. He whacked in you know, and he whacked of, out. Yeah, exactly. You know those, but those kind of things that at the time as a kid in the business I really didn't like because it just seemed silly. But those are the types of things that looking back at now were very memorable parts of that match. You know, the types of things that, okay, you're going to have your guys that can really go and go hard in the ring. And then you're going to have something like that. that's a little bit of comic relief in the middle of it. But the fans are going to love it, you know. And so it, it all fit when done right. So now talking about this match, what exactly do you remember about this match? Because you're, you're in there at 17 and, and you last, uh, you know, a good bit of time. So, you know, what do you remember about your, your time in the, in the match? Well, remember that whenever I went there, in 1990. This is after the, I was with Johnny Ace and with all the, you know, we had talked about WCW before, you know, the Jim Hurd story and all that. Uh, I had gone to the WWF in 1990 uh, only with a, the promise of a job. There was no spot. They weren't bringing me in to be the Dean or, you know, a young franchise or anything like that. It was just a shame we got a job. We, we have an opening for you. And so I knew that I had to impress somebody. I had to go in and show that I could do this. And, you know, and be a, an asset for them. So with that in mind, going there, this was the first time, you know, again, without a spot, they didn't have a clearly defined rule. Okay, on this show, we're going to start pushing Shane Douglas and build Shane Douglas up. My entrance into the WWF at that time was, you know, just, okay, here's an opening, see what he does with it. And, uh, you know, it started off with, thank God, uh, I got to work around the loop with guys like Buddy Rose, and Playboy Buddy Rose, and Haku. And Haku, and, and this is one of the reasons, aside from just being a great guy uh, and a tough son of a bitch, as everybody knows, uh, why I have so much respect for him, because he was one of the big names at that time in the company. And when they came and they it was at a Madison Square Garden show, they said, okay, Shane, tonight you're going Broadway with Haku. Well, you know, going Broadway with a guy that, that over, you know, you know that that's not just a mistake, you know, a roll of the dice. They've got plans. And Haku, who could have very easily gone out to that ring and eaten me up, busted his ass to get me over for that 15 minutes far beyond what my own abilities would have been able to do at that time you know because i always had the chance you know everybody hears me talk all the time about the guys before me the guys like haku and macho man and those little drips of wisdom that they would give you know for me like macho man had said to me that first time up there in 1985 six whatever it was you know if you always remember kid if you want to have a career in this business always thank the guy that thank the guy that puts you over and that's always stuck with me and then now here i am a few years later back not just as an enhancement guy as an underneath guy uh, now they're slowly going to start this build and see where i take it although it's comfortable to know that you're moving you're walking into a spot uh, there's also so many things especially in wrestling as we know what it is there's so many moving parts to that that can have impact on that good and bad if you don't get along with a guy in one of the writers or you know in the office or somebody's politics are trying to undermine you you know the click that kind of thing going in this time without any real respect responsibility just go out and work your ass off and then being blessed to get put in the ring with 
guys like Buddy Rose and guys like Haku and going out and just having fun. The fans that have listened to me for any length of time know that I talk about that 1990 trip to WWF in very positive terms. I was paid well. Uh, I had great guys to work with. Um, and there was no pressure on me as a young kid. So now we get to the Royal Rumble and, you know, you walk in again, I'm just, okay, who am I wrestling tonight? You know, if I'm in the Rumble, okay, it'll be in and out, that kind of thing. And uh, they came to me and very specifically said, you know, we have you in there, you know, for a considerable chunk of time. Are you, are you okay with that? In other words, can you do it? And I knew I could do it. You know, I, the time wasn't the issue. And then they say, okay, you know, we're, we're thinking about like 35, 40 minutes. And you know, now you start to think like, okay, we, there's all these other big names in this match and some pretty big guys. And, you know, and then you just get to the point, you know, first a little intimidating. And then you settle in like, hey, this is, I want to be a pro wrestler. This is part of, you know, so take a deep breath. Go out and work your ass off. Shoot for the stars. Sometimes you miss, sometimes you hit, but you know, even the times you miss, it's, it was rarely for lack of effort. I noticed you spent the majority of your time in the Rumble with the model Rick Martel. Were you told to do that, or did you just feel more comfortable with him? Feel comfortable with him. I, I, you know, they would have never told you that, that to, to be that specific, but you know, Rick was one of those guys that I had a lot of respect for. You know, I always considered him a very good worker. And when you're in a match like that with 29 other guys, you know, you have no idea when one of those three, four, 500 pound guys is going to take a bump behind you and maybe roll up on your leg or whatever. But you always had the sense that if you were with someone like a Rick Martel, you could follow his lead and be pretty safe. Man, he looked incredible here, did he not? <laughs> he always did, man. That's, and he still looks incredible today. You know, that, that's one of the things about Rick that, you know, I've been watching him since I was a kid watching, uh, you know, WOR wrestling at midnight on, you know, on, on, uh, cable, uh, W, Channel 9, WOR out of New York. And, you know, back when he was tag teaming with, uh, Gria as the, uh, as the tag team champs. And, uh, even back then, I remember as a kid watching him, you know, he was just phenomenal at selling. And if you go back and you watch those matches at that time, Rick looked good. But then you look at him at this time frame, 1990 going forward, he looks unbelievable. I mean, just fabulous as far as his physical build went and could work his ass off too. Now, speaking of people who looked fantastic, I have to say you looked pretty good in this. Uh, you know, we were watching uh, we were watching Royal Rumble '91 at my house as I was getting ready for this uh, this episode, and my wife happens to come through when they're like number 17 shane douglas and she's like that's shane she could not believe that it was you because you were so young and it was just so, <laughs> so it just you just look so different at then compared to what she's used to you know knowing you now she could not believe that that was you well the little secret here is i was 11 in 1990 whenever i whenever i wrestled in the royal rumble uh, just a few years yeah, older I, than I me at the time <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I go back and I watch those matches now. You know, you look at yourself in the mirror every day, right? You, you see the same guy you saw yesterday, and so you think you always look the same. But you go back and watch those matches and think, I don't remember ever looking that young. Like, I don't look like I'm able to, like, vote, let alone wrestle. You yeah, know, it's super uh, young. But you bring up a good point about my, my conditioning. You know, prior to this, if you go back and look, like, even when, when I was with the dudes, I started working out harder. And, you know, I knew that if I was going to be in the business or ever want a singles career, that 
that especially in the land of the giants, then you really had, I had to pack muscle on and I really had to get myself in the best shape I could have been in at that point. You get up there and, you know, one of the guys that right at the top of my head pops into my head is Jimmy Superfly Snooker. I was, you know, I grew up in a, I've talked about this before, in a little, you know, podunk town called Pulaski Township. I didn't know the first goddamn thing about being in the gym. You know, I, I knew to go, you know, go and I knew how to bench press and squat and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I didn't know, like, do this many sets for this body part and do these body parts on the same day and never do these two body parts on the same day. Uh, but I used to go to the gym with Jimmy Snooker. Then later, uh, uh, Kerry Von Eric, Texas Tornado. And those guys were so well-versed in the gym. You know, they, they knew everything about bodybuilding and what to do, what not to do, how to correct form and all of that. And Jimmy Snooker and, and, and Kerry... I credit the two of them, and then later Sting. I was really teaching me, or I, I should say earlier Sting, was really teaching me the ins and outs of being in the weight room and how to put that size on. Well, they definitely did a good job because you looked amazing here. And uh, I've seen you make contact with almost everyone you were in the ring with, but never once with Hulk Hogan. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this the only time you were ever in the ring with the Hulkster? No. Uh, WCW, in, in the last run, they were were talking about taking me from Flair to Hogan next. Uh, Hogan liked to be in the ring with guys that would bounce around, and you know I was pretty good at that. You know, that, so that we would later do this, a few things in WCW. I don't know, can't recall if they were televised or not. But I remember him saying to me several times, "I want to work with you. I want to work with you." You know, but my guess is, I know again, I have no specific memory of this, but my guess is, hey, that's that's the Hulkster. That's like the top guy. Like, don't go near him. He's got his shit planned out. You know, and. And especially at this point, you know, I'm here on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you certainly wouldn't stick your nose into like those top-level guys because my guess at that time would have been, I'm certain right, uh, that these guys have their stuff planned out and he's trying to remember his spot and what spots he has to do with certain guys and everything else. So you'd, you'd you know, digress and then go do your other stuff. So were you told to stay away from Hulk Hogan? No, he just knew it. You just, you it know, was just an unspoken it, 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 thing, stay away from Hogan. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, he's the top guy in the company by far. And again, you know that him coming into the match, it's going to be a big pop and that he's got, I'm sure, very specific things and routines to remember that he's got to do. And so if somebody didn't come to me and say, hey, by the way, at this point, go to the Hulkster and he's going to do this out of the other thing. A, he was a baby face. I was a baby face. So there will be no reason to for us to engage, although I'm sure I did engage with other baby faces in the Battle Royal type match. But no, you'd never, never stick in with, you know, with, with one of the top guys like that same thing as like you never do a ddt if jake was on the card because that's his finishing move right you know there was a certain basic rules of our business that don't seem to be get adhered to very much these days all right so brian knobs the fill-in for honky talk man one of those eventual final four uh he was going to be in the final four here would be the one to toss you out at 26 minutes and 23 seconds making you the fifth longest in the Rumble behind the British Bulldog, which was in there for 36 minutes and 43 seconds, Hercules, 37 minutes and 36 seconds, Greg Valentine at 44 minutes and 3 seconds, and Rick Martell at 52 minutes and 17 seconds. So you already knew Nobbs was the guy to throw you out. You just had to find him yep. at the right time? Yes. So how did uh, they how did uh, they do that with, with Nobbs being you know just thrown in the Rumble at the last minute? Did they come up to you? Did you originally have someone else? else that was going to throw you out no no as i recall I, I can still remember seeing the the lineup you know the in and out lineup uh hanging on the pillar in the back dressing you know the dressing area and you just went up there and 
he didn't really much pay attention to anything else. He said, first thing you do is look for your name. Okay, this is the number I'm going in, when you were out, and who was throwing you out. You know, and you start to see, you know, again, with 29 guys and all these bodies moving in all 100 different directions, you know, you're paying attention at that specific time. Okay, I'm after this guy, and okay, he just went out, so now I need to find Brian to work to him and do whatever it is we're going to do before we go out, before you, I go out. Were you disappointed that you had no one to throw out, like they didn't give you any eliminations, or was that just less for you to remember? No. You know, again, to me at this time, I was just happy to have a job and to be, you know, getting the opportunity. You know, like back in the business, they say, you know, we'll give you an opportunity. I was just happy to have that opportunity. And again, you know, at this time, you first walk into the WWF and, you know, I was called the land of the Giants. I mean, Nobs at that time was a big guy, you know, and, and, you know, still is. So as a kid coming into the business, my only thing, the only thing I was ever thinking of was just work your ass off. Just go out and work hard. The rest of it will fall into place however it has to. But the, the, the flip side of that, the positive side of that is there is really not much pressure on you. You know, you're not in a spot to draw. You know, there, there's uh, there's no big hinge point in this match other than your entrance and exit for you to remember or to be involved in. And so now, you know, that takes all the pressure off and allows you to just go out there and have fun. You know, because you're not remembering, hey, okay, this happened now. i got to go do this for Hogan before I get thrown out or whatever. You know, like where you're trying to remember very specific stuff. I just remember having a shitload of fun that night. I wonder why Brian Knobs was picked for the Final Four when he was just a fill-in guy for the Honky Tonk Man. Originally, uh, you know, was the Honky Tonk Man originally supposed to be one of the Final Four, or were plans changed when Honky pulled out to have Knobs in the Final Four, or do you even know? Well, I don't know, but again, just from a booking standpoint, if you have a replacement, you don't want to put the replacement up and be somebody thrown out right away. You know, so it's like, it's sort of the wild card. Hey, we didn't expect to see this guy here. And so if you bring him out and then throw him out, it sort of looks just like a fill-in. And I think that goes to, you know, goes to the root of like how you can see why Pat Patterson was such a good booker, because, you know, I, I think today the conventional wisdom would be, ah, Brian Nubbs is to fill in, you know, get him out there and, you know, let him do his stuff and get him out. As opposed to, hey, let's put him out there, give him a complicit role. You know, so now at that point, you said earlier about the, you know, this year's Royal Rumble. Now the fans watching this and suddenly he's going a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Now he's down to the, the last four or five, six guys. And, you know, fans start thinking like, okay, is this a swerve they're throwing us? Is it, are they going to put him over? Um, I think it's, it's, it's just smart booking. All right, so Hulk Hogan would end up winning the Royal Rumble in 1991 did you talk well, there's to- a shocker yeah did you did you talk to Hogan at all on this night, or was he separated from the rest of the locker room? Well, Hogan stayed, you know, I don't want to say isolated, but he was kept pretty busy. You know, he would get to the buildings, and, and I've talked about this a million times before, but it's one of the reasons why I've got a lot of respect for Terry. You know, not a big fan of his work, that, but, you know, that's, again, some like vanilla, some like chocolate. You know, when you're at that level and you go to a big show like this, your day is divvied out to the second. Okay, you know, it's, it's, you know, 103, we need you down here to do this. And then at 118, you need to be in the booth to do your promos and then this and then and then and then and then. And they'd have a handler with them, you know, running them to these point A to B to C to D. Terry never, it was never one of the guys like, hey, I'm, this is my dressing, you can't come in here. That, that was never Terry's way that I remember. But his time was so divvied out. So the 1991 Rumble did 440,000 buys, a huge number considering both the 1990 and 1992 shows did 260,000 each. Now, that's quite a spike for one show, and it would be the most buys for any Rumble for eight years. This Royal Rumble did better buy rates than WrestleMania from the same calendar year as WrestleMania 7 did 
just 400,000 buys. Do you credit all of that success to you being on the show? Because I sure do. Every bit of it. <laughs> no, it's, uh, no, I mean, listen to you know all those names you mentioned earlier. You know, in the earlier matches, that was a pretty stacked card and well booked. You know, it, it, it you know it wasn't like just okay, you know, get you know get Brian Knobs out there and let's just let him do something and get him out. Right? It, it seemed like every portion of this was well booked out, which is what a great booker does. If nothing is left to chance. Nothing is left to just oh maybe. It's planned out to the finite degree, and you know, not that sometimes you can't get off track or get off script. But when it's planned out, and again, back to the eloquence of the pros that are good at doing this, when they go out and they execute it as the booker sees it in his head, that's when you, you know, when you're in a match, there's a moment when you're in a great match where you just feel it. And it just sort of like takes, like it, like it has a life of its own. And, you know, everything works and it just sort of falls into place. And those matches, actually, the, you know, when you go out and see somebody have a five-star match, I'm going to take a stab and say that most guys that have those matches, have them and consider them easier matches than say a two-star match when you know you're really working hard and you're just not finding the groove with this guy you're working with and that's what i you know that that's what it sounds like to me with this royal rumble it's a stacked card you know it's well booked it's got a lot of great names on it and young guys like me that were there to make a you know try to make a name for themselves uh just a well-booked show all right well that about wraps it up for royal rumble 1991 what is your final takeaway from this moment in your career? Well, for me at that time, you know, and this is this whole run in 1990 to 91 was, you know, when when fans hear me speaking in in positive terms about my time in WWF, it's from this run. I had a ton of fun. I had incredible guys to work with, incredible guys to travel with. Um, you, know, you know, you mentioned the four amigos. We used to have a shitload of fun on the on the road, just cutting up between the four of ourselves like four idiots would do. Um, um, and, and then you get to the building and have, like I said, a playboy buddy Rose, who was phenomenal in the ring, by the way, to work with, and Haku, and you know all these types of guys. And then you had guys like Rick Martel, and you know all these other guys that you looked up to from the time you were a kid. And you know you're suddenly in this dressing room. You know this was a very idyllic time for me in the business. And again, one with very little responsibility. All I had to do was work hard and listen and learn. Unfortunately, this run would be cut short just as they were getting ready to. Uh, Vince wanted to try me. The way he termed to me was he wanted to create a John Bon Jovi character. Jimmy Hart had written three songs for me to go into the studio. I played bass and sang, and you know uh, he had written three songs for me. And at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, uh, not long before I left, we I went there and he had three versions of the music for each song: uh, a hard rock version, a rock version, and a pop version. And you know after listening to me sing to the songs, he he came to the to the conclusion that my range was best in the rock range, and so we were going to record these three songs and then Vince as it was laid out to me envisioned a time when this character would then go out on tour uh, much like uh, like a, a, a Chris Jericho with Fozzie uh, that there would be this character launch and roll out and that was where the uh, the denim and white leather and concho outfit came from it was right after uh, uh, what was the movie with Bon Jovi's music in it um, Young Guns that was where that car- that outfit came from and unfortunately just as we were getting ready to go into the studio to record that music my dad had come down with late stage uh, stage four emphysema and you know uh was living by himself and you know when if you've ever known anybody that's ever been on oxygen it can be pretty dangerous they can get forgetful you know and if they'd leave a uh, you know an open flame with the oxygen running it could blow the place up and so it was imperative that i'd be home you know uh, 
to, to help take care of my father. And I left, and I remember sitting and talking to Vince. It was either Erie or Niagara Falls. We sat in like an ante room, like off to the side, like the convention side of the building. And we had a long talk. He told me about his mother and spoke in very glowing phrases, you know, about his mother, which you can, you know, see my, my uh, being mystified whenever I read the Playboy magazine article. Uh, but we had a long talk and he said to me, family always comes first. You've been a great hand. Uh, the door is always open to come back. And that was my last night working for him that, in that run. Uh, but I remember that run very specifically in, the, in general terms, you know, as to how much fun I had. There was no responsibility really on me. You know, the house wasn't going to rise or be down if Shane Douglas was or was not on the card. Uh, but I had an incredible array of talent. And the dressing room back then, very unlike what I saw in 95, the dressing room was the boys. You know, everybody got along, you know, they're cutting up, you know, you have a temper flare here or there. But, you know, overall, it was a very, very positive and fun experience. 1990-91. You know, it's crazy for me to think that if that would have happened, this show might be called Franchise with Shane Bon Jovi. <laughs> That would or have, something like that. That'd be interesting. It would definitely be interesting. But uh, that about does it for this week's uh, episode, Royal Rumble 91. We put another one in the books here. And now we've got to talk about this contest that we've got coming up because next week we are doing the Bruno San Martino episode. It's going to be all about Bruno. We're going to talk about how you felt as a fan meeting and, and seeing Bruno. We're going to talk about how you felt as a, as a wrestler coming into the business around Bruno and, and also we're going to talk about uh, you know Bruno's whole legacy and what it meant to you as a wrestler, as a fan, and just as a person. I- I'm really excited because I know that this is something that's special to you, and and I yes. think that it's going to be a really great episode because of that. But on that episode, we are going to announce what the contest is going to be for these two tickets to the reunion in Roundtown. Now, when I talked about this last week, we got a lot of response from a lot of people. Apparently, we have quite a few listeners that are in driving range of Circleville, Ohio, because we've got quite a big uh, big list of guys that are going to be in this contest to win these tickets. Now, this this happens on Saturday, March 14th, 2020, at the Fairgrounds Heritage Center in Circleville, Ohio. It's World Classic Professional Big Time Wrestling, and uh, Bobby Fulton, of course, is, is helping putting it on. we got Buff Bagwell, Jimmy Valiant, Sandman, Francine, uh, Tommy Rich, Road Warrior Animal, Raven, Missy Hyatt, Brian Pillman Jr., Bobby Fulton, uh, the Midnight Express, the original Midnight Express with Jim Cornette. You got Barry Windham, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, J.J. Dillon, Ernest the Cat Miller, Chase Owens, um, Ricky Morton, Kevin Sullivan, New Jack, Nikita Koloff, Dan Severn, and the franchise, Shane Douglas. All are going to be live at Big Time Wrestling Saturday, March 14th, and you have a chance to win two tickets presented to you by Stephen P. New and New Law Offices, and you will be able to go to this show if you win the contest, and next week we are going to make the announcement of what the contest is and how you can win right here on Franchised with Shane Douglas. Wait, well, I mean, first of all, that's a, that's a hell of a lineup, right? I mean... You know, I just somebody showed me the poster the other day, and you know I, I knew a bunch of the names on there. I didn't realize all the names on it. It's a hell of a stacked card. You know, Bobby Fulton has run several shows there in the past. Always does a great job of promoting. Always has a great house. <clears throat> but with a card like that, I think you know, you're going to have a real good chance of packing that building out. Um, now I may be wrong on this, but I 
think, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the building that Bobby had run the last time has been torn down and they built a new uh, arena. I believe that the last time I drove through there, that they have a new building there. But even if not, the old building was phenomenal. You know, it's a, it's a great, great... The building has all the feel of what I remember of when I was breaking into wrestling, of the venues like the, the Nathan Goss Arena in Clarksburg, West Virginia that I used to go to. The Circleville building has all those same hallmarks. And so to have all those classic names of professional wrestling, you know, from all three of the big companies are going to be there. This is a it's a pretty for wrestling fans. It's going to be a hell of a fun event. It sure is, and there's a lot of names on there that I've met before, and a lot of names on there that I haven't met before. And I really wish that I was in driving distance of Circleville, Ohio, but I'm not, so I will not be making it. But I am going to make it to a show on January 30th because New Japan Pro Wrestling contacted franchise with Shane Douglas and offered me up tickets to go just so that we would review it here on the podcast. Now I had to let them down and let them know that, uh, that Shane Douglas is not going to come to Florida to go, to go to this event after just being here for yeah. AEW, but they said that that was okay and that I could come by myself. So uh, I am going to be making it to the uh, New Beginning in uh, right outside of Miami there at uh, the New Beginning New Japan Pro Wrestling Show, and I will be reviewing it as bonus content right here on Franchise with Shane Douglas. I thought it was pretty cool that New Japan invited us. Hell yeah. I mean, it's a great thing, right? You know, to see, you know, A, I, I was a huge, huge fan of New Japan wrestling, and, and you know, they, they got, we had talked before we came on the air. For me, as somebody who you know had always worked hard to want to learn the craft of wrestling, I was always impressed by the, all the Japanese wrestlers. You know, the dojo system that they have there—they very much were old school vein, and and how they took a young talent, built that young talent. Uh, I remember the first time going to Japan in 1988 uh, for All Japan and Baba's company, and seeing uh, you know the young boys then who would later become like uh, uh, Kenta Kabashi uh, who you know became a huge star in Japan later uh, I, I remember you know here you hear these stories and then you see it uh, Kabashi on his you know young boy down on his knees uh, scrubbing Baba's feet and I remember thinking boy that, that, that's, a, that's a real story I guess they really do that you know and uh, but you can see why those guys you know why Japanese wrestlers were always so damn good at what they did uh, was because they were brought into the business right they were trained into the business right and they had respect for the business and those that had tended the business before them you know for, for new japan to have offered to bring us down to see that show I, I, i'll be eager to see you know tape of the show to be able to give feedback but you'll be there live and you know hopefully sending me some uh, live reports yes i will I'll, I'll send you all the live reports maybe even put you on facetime so you can see what's going on it's going to be a really awesome show i will have pictures that will be posted on the uh, franchise with shane douglas facebook which reminds me make sure that you like the franchise with Shane Douglas Facebook. Make sure you follow us on Twitter. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. Make sure you join the franchisee Facebook group. There's all kinds of places where you can hook up with other franchisees and learn information before anybody else gets it. So um, make sure that you like all those pages, follow all those pages, and stay locked in with Franchise with Shane Douglas. We've got a lot of bonus content coming up in the next few weeks, so be on the lookout for that. And now uh, we got Bruno Sam Martino next week and it's time for you to take us home. 
Hey, Bruno San Martino, the living legend of professional wrestling, in my mind, still alive. Can't wait to talk about him next week. He said he's a huge, huge part of my childhood. Uh, my affinity for professional wrestling stems from Bruno, you know, being a Pittsburgh boy, studio wrestling. Can't wait to talk about Bruno San Martino next week. Make sure you tune in next week to hear all the inside scoop and some you may not have ever heard before right here on Franchise. Do it. <laughs> Or get your ass franchised. <laughs> Shane Douglas. We're going to be giving another participant in just a few seconds here, Hot Rod. They get the clock. Shane Douglas. What a tremendous youngster here in the World Wrestling Federation. And what a name he's making for himself.
This has been a product of Superior Radio Network. At the law office of Stephen New, we take a team approach to your case. Our staff and paralegals are excellent and will assist you through every step of your case. We employ world-class experts to make sure that your case is developed to its maximum value. When you seek legal counsel, choose Stephen New and his team. They'll work together to achieve the best results for your case and support you every step of the way. Our clients, why we do what we do at the Law Office of Stephen New.